My youngest son is in preschool, and um, we love the school. They, um, they're teaching him so many awesome things, and he's growing, and we love it. Um, we have one small complaint. They send us so many emails and updates that we just can't keep up. So in usual fashion, my husband and I just joke about it. And we may have also stopped reading all of the emails. So um, one day that caught up with us. And we kind of had a little inkling on Monday. We were like, I think we missed something, but we weren't super concerned. And then on Tuesday morning at about 6 a.m., we woke up and started. we just decided to start scrolling through emails, see what we had missed. Well, that morning, he had a Thanksgiving program at 9 a.m. So not only were we supposed to attend, but we were supposed to bring something to pass. So we, in usual fashion, just had to pick up chips or something. But um, we were expecting to know which email came through that would tell us the important information, and we missed it. There's a similar story in the Old Testament about God's people who were waiting for their Messiah to return. They were waiting for the, the, their king to come who would free them from Rome. So when Jesus came on the scene, it was, it was different. It was not what they were expecting. Um, there hadn't been a true prophet in over 400 years, and it, he didn't seem like a, a priest because of his trade. He was just an ordinary guy. But he was a prophet. He spoke with wisdom and authority. And he did miracles. And he was a priest. He didn't need a temple, and he didn't need rituals. He spoke directly to his people. He, um, he hung out with the unruly and the misfits, and he protected the weak. So Jesus was the prophecy. He did fulfill that. But his people missed it because they were looking in the wrong spot. We face a similar threat in our lives, like I did with my emails, and like God's people did with Jesus. And it's, it's up to us to, to find and look for the places. When, when, when Jesus isn't what we expected, we need to look for him everywhere. And sometimes he shows up in bigger and better ways than we could have ever imagined. Bells will be
Let's hear it once again for Fantastic Beats and where to find them. Good morning, everybody. My name's David. We're glad that you are here with us today, man. And we want to take care of a little business. We're going to start out by giving an offering to God. We know that Christmas is a time for giving, a season for generosity, and we want to make sure that our hearts are in the right place. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, give, and it will come back to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And that's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of people we want to be. We want to give more than our tip and maybe less than our inheritance. So ushers, you come forwards. Everybody, you give as God has enabled you. And as you do so, I want to introduce you to one of our West Winds elders, my good friend, Rick Martoya. Rick, come on up, man. Good morning, everybody. Um, we always pick a, a Sunday in December when we give a separate and special offering for our pastors uh, as a show of love and support for them. Now, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and we don't do it, but we could come asking for money in October. And then if we came asking for money in December, you'd all say, don't you pay these people? So we just save it all for the month of December. And I would suspect that it's pretty easy for all of us to show up on Sunday and watch Dave preach his head off and, and Kelly and the band sing their eyes out and Terry with her staff and back running around chasing our kids all over creation and think, you know what, during the week though, they get six days off between Sundays. So it's pretty easy around here, right? Well, the reality is any, nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, on any given day or night, dozens of us are having our personal needs dealt with personally by our staff. Um, you should also know that our staff at any given time is planning out our next teaching series four to six months in advance. Kelly's writing music. We're figuring out what we're going to do with, with uh, social media. Dave's reading anywhere from 30 to 50 books per new teaching session that comes up. That's crazy, isn't it? But that's what happens. Um, and so there's a lot that goes on. And I would also share with you that, that Dave would tell you that this has been his most challenging ministry year since he's been in Michigan. And all the while, he's raising a family and trying to keep some semblance of a marriage relationship with Carmel, right? So there's a lot that goes on around here. And, and I just want to encourage you. Um, I'm not looking to, to get them sympathy. We're just trying to be encouraging that we give generously next week when we get an opportunity to show our love and support for them. All right? Thank you. Thanks, Rick. You know, of course, that we're in the middle of a series entitled Variety, where we're modeling our services after late-night TV shows, and we're looking at strange events that have happened on Christmas Day every December 25th since the time of Christ. Uh, somebody said to me, I really like this new format. I was like, oh, thank you. They said, because it's so much less of you. So uh, I hope that you feel the same way. We're excited about it. And today, we'd like to talk about Handel's Messiah, which was first performed in the United States on Christmas Day, 1818, and remains one of the most striking and beloved compositions of all time. Not quite as beloved as Yukon Cornelius, or the Elf on the Shelf, or Ugly Christmas Sweaters, or our amazing habit of soaking jujubes in alcohol before turning them into cake, but beloved nonetheless. The text of Handel's Messiah is taken entirely from the King James Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. And it traces the messianic expectations of both Jewish and Christian people through Isaiah and the Psalms and the Gospels. These words, combined with this powerful music, make for a compelling experience. Because there's no better way to make the Bible exciting than to have it screamed in unison by angry women for several hours on stage when you cannot escape to the restroom to play with your phone. Originally designed for Easter, Messiah has since become synonymous with Christmas. 
because it is more fun to celebrate Jesus' birth than his death, just like it's more fun to attend a wedding than a divorce hearing, more fun to receive an ultrasound than a colonoscopy, <laughs> and more fun to look at a poster of a Kevin Costner movie than actually be subjected to watching one. <laughs> so again, our main story explores how Messiah models for us an exemplary life of faith, because learning more about the composition of this masterpiece will remind us to take bold risks, to persist with our passions despite opposition, and to keep learning and growing in our faith every day. All this from one song? Absolutely. If you can go onto Amazon.com and buy your groceries, your clothing, and even a small portable house, you can definitely get all of this from one incredible song. Now, the first public performance of Handel's Messiah, anywhere ever, occurred in a room about half this size on April 13, 1742. About 700 people crammed into the music hall on Fishamble Street, and anticipating the large turnout, the local radio station warned the ladies not to have hoops in their skirts and for the men to leave their swords at home. But I'll tell you something. The last time Carmel went hoopless and I had my sword taken away, we were absconded by a gang of rapscallions, and I will not make that mistake again. <laughs> I'm not so open-minded as to let my brains fall out a second time. The Hallelujah Chorus is, of course, the most famous part of Handel's Messiah, much like I'm Too Sexy is the most famous song by Right Said Fred, and Celine Dion is the most famous person from Canada, and the mustache is the most famous part of Burt Reynolds. His eyes are up here. When the Hallelujah Chorus is performed, it is customary for all in attendance to stand. The custom originates from a belief that at the London premiere, King George II stood, which obliged everyone else to follow suit. And I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of an elderly man who stands unexpectedly, but I have. In my boyhood church, while my father was preaching, there was an elderly veteran named George sitting close to the front row. He fell asleep during the sermon and partway through awoke with a bolt and stood up and clutched his chest. We thought he was having a heart attack, but he just stood there. And so my father, not knowing what to do, placed his hand over his heart, and then people from the church just began to stand in a spontaneous moment of revered silence, all because of a, an outbreak of vertical Alzheimer's that I will never forget. <laughs> when George finally sat down, his wife patted his leg and whispered something in his ear. I never heard what she said, but I like to imagine she congratulated him. The commies will never take us alive. <laughs> Now, I have been in an audience four separate times when Handel's Messiah was performed and when the Hallelujah Chorus was shouted. Every single time but one, everybody stood to their feet. The one time it did not occur was here in Detroit. And I asked the man next to me, why aren't they standing? He replied, they're afraid they'll be shot. And I said, it's appropriate for people to take a stand in Detroit. And he said, no, we just wait for the bailout. Now, why are we talking about Handel's Messiah in church today? Well, for three reasons. Number one, Handel's Messiah was initially misunderstood. People thought that it was blasphemous and sacrilegious. And that didn't make any sense to me until you learn that they thought that Handel's performance and his words were all a way for him to posture, to look more spiritual than he actually was. And get this, they were offended by it. Which just goes to prove to you that you can do absolutely nothing wrong and people will still be offended. Those who are looking to take offense will take offense anywhere. 
Additionally, there was controversy with many of the early performances. During one concert, two of the leading sopranos came to blows on stage, ripping their clothes and scratching their eyes while the audience members cheered them on during Handel's Messiah. The incident led satirist John Arbutnot to write, shame on those two well-bred ladies that they should call each other bees and fight instead of sing. Now, we all took great delight when Cardi B threw her shoe at Nicki Minaj during New York Fashion Week, but I think despite that, it's safe to say that peace is still better than violence, that worship is still better than warfare, and that musicians are far more pleasant when they're not arguing over who has the better trill. Now, Handel's Messiah is also something we want to celebrate over and over again because of the endless iterations that the composer made. In fact, Handel always made adjustments to the score before every performance, much like Lindsay Lohan with her face, or her criminal record, or her terrible, terrible films. As was his custom, Handel rearranged the music to suit his singers. And it's probable that his work was never performed in the way he originally composed it during his lifetime. As such, there is no single version of Messiah that can be regarded as the quote-unquote authentic one. Handel worked with the people he had at hand, working within his constraints rather than chafing against them. And I think we would all be better served if we could live like that. Too many men are looking to go out and find Mrs. Wright and taking, instead of taking care of the one they have at home. Too many women are hoping that an as-of-yet undiscovered member of the royal family will decide they love basic Midwestern girls who shop at TJ Maxx and never change out of their sweatpants. <laughs> Hashtag, hey, Prince Charming. Anyway, Handel was constantly adjusting his music to fit his context, and that tradition has since continued, most notably and most recently, with Handel's Messiah, a soulful celebration commonly referred to as Handel's Black Messiah, which won the 1992 Grammy Award for Best Contemporary Gospel Album. Now, the third and final reason that today we want to celebrate Handel's Messiah is because of its sacred beauty and signs of devotion. In a fit of fervor, Handel composed this entire piece in just 24 days. His original manuscript, his original uh, score is 259 pages long and it contains blots of ink, scratched out portions, unfilled bars and uncorrected errors because he was in such a dense passion that he simply could not stop until he was completed. When he wrote the Hallelujah Chorus, he said that it was as though all of heaven had opened up before him. So, in summary, Handel's Messiah altered music and changed the world. He was passionate in a time that celebrated rationalism. He was joyful in the midst of a culture that took every opportunity to be offended. And he was adaptable in a genre that never changes and tolerates few mistakes. But maybe that's the point. Sacred music connects us. It heals us and it enlivens us. And this holiday season, you will be surrounded by sacred music everywhere you go. You have to pay attention to it, or you will miss the fact that the Lord God Almighty is speaking to you, is healing you in the restaurants and in the coffee shops, in your office cubicles and in your living rooms, and everywhere you go, reminding you again and again and again and again that Jesus Christ is here, that you do not have to wait any longer that Christ has come to set us free, to bring new life, and to dispel the darkness both in us and around us. 
I'm David McDonald, wishing you a very happy holidays. Okay, so there are a number of theories that try to explain how Jesus and the, and the cross make atonement for our sin. And one of those theories is called Christus Victor, which is a Latin term that simply means Christ the victor. So to understand what this concept's about, you have to sort of understand what's called the, the warfare worldview of Scripture. And the warfare worldview of Scripture is that there's a battle going on. There's a battle raging between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The idea is that when Adam uh, sinned, he gave over reign and rule of human life and the world and the creation to the evil one. And it's now his domain. And you find some striking phrases uh, from Jesus and Paul referring to uh, Satan as the prince and ruler of this age, uh, the, the god of this age even. So the idea is that uh, Satan uh, came and he kills, uh, steals, and destroys, and he came and, and he uh, basically annexed the world that God created and is now running it. This theory says basically the enemies that we have to fight against as, as humans are basically sin death and the evil one. And so this idea of Christus victors that Christ had to come and undo what Adam did. And to do that, he, had, he needed to live under the reign and rule of God. And the central message you find in the gospels from Jesus' lips is the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is close. It's among you, it's with you, but it's not fully here. And so what Jesus does is he becomes the second Adam and grows, and he has to overcome sin, death, and the devil. And we see him overcoming uh, the devil simply in the temptation narratives in the Gospels, where Jesus is tempted 40 days in the wilderness, and by not giving in to temptation, Jesus overcomes Satan. And so he's victor over Satan. And then we see that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life throughout his whole life. And in that sense, Jesus overcame uh, sin and became a victor over sin. And we also see that Jesus, the, the last enemy, Paul calls death. And in this, uh, we see that Jesus died, but he was raised by God from the dead and overcomes death. So he's victor, uh, victorious over death. So Christus victor means Jesus came and did what we couldn't do. He undid what Adam did, and he conquered the evil one. He conquered sin, and he conquered death, and now reigns as victor. So Christ is uh, exalted, exalted as king, as king uh, who now. now will bring the kingdom of God to fullness in his second coming. This is Couch Surfing. I'm Kelly Heath. My co-host this morning is Melissa Evans, and our special guest is Christina Martoya. Christina is a licensed social worker, a mom, and a grandmother, and she and her husband Rick have been a long time part of our Westlands community. They are, they are awesome. Um, this morning we've been talking about themes of waiting, uh, God not meeting our expectations or, or us missing what he's doing in our lives. Um, can you think of a time that you've had to wait? 
so many times over the last hundred years that I've been serving the Lord. Hundred years, right? <laughs> uh, many, many times as a mother, um, waiting for change in, in my children, waiting for freedom from myself, sin, um, circumstances, just, just waiting on the Lord to, expecting Him to answer a prayer, expecting Him to come through in a certain way, and um, not, necessarily, not necessarily having that in the timing that I would like it. Um, and so, yeah, many, many times over, over my life, I've, I've experienced that time of waiting. And a couple things that have kind of gotten me through that is um, reflecting and remembering what God has done for me in the past. Where has God shown up? Where have I seen his hand work? I've you know, prayed and, and tried to communicate with him my feelings and my thoughts, and I've seen his hand show up in the past. And so I know that today, he's going to do the same thing for me. Can I interrupt you right there? Absolutely. Um, it, has there been times when, when you've gotten that far, but then also you feel stuck? And, and what do you do with that? Um, yeah, definitely feel stuck. And, and there's all kinds of feelings that come with that and thoughts. It's, there's discouraging thoughts. You know, is God hearing me? Um, is he going to answer my prayer? Um, discouragement, fear of the unknown, mm -hmm. um, doubt. I'm doubting myself. I'm doubting my walk with the Lord. And so absolutely there's those feelings that come with that. What I do is a couple of things. I press into his word and um, surf the word, if you would say, you know, <laughs> just go to the word and find where I could just get some clarity from him and um, direction. Um, I worship. I love to praise and worship. Yeah. And yeah. Through that, it, it helps me be grateful for what he has done and what he is going to do regardless of how I'm feeling and what's going on. So just keeping my focus on him instead of focusing on the circumstances. Because when I do that, you know, when we're focused, that's what's going to be magnified in our, in our minds and in our, in our emotions. So keeping our focus on him. Keeping our focus. So I'm hearing you say that we have a role to play while we're waiting, that we have you know, something to do yeah, while we're waiting absolutely. on God. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in that time that we're waiting, I believe that God is, is doing a work in me. That's my biggest opportunity to grow if I utilize that. And growth and maturity and deepening my roots of, of trust and mm -hmm. faith in Him and being reassured that I know He's working even though I may not quite see it or have that answer. Sure, sure. And, um, yeah, keeping, keeping that focus there. Yeah. What are some things you've done to push yourself forward? Um, push myself forward is, is, first of all, don't give up and, and don't lose heart, knowing that God, God loves me and he's got the best for me. He sent his son Jesus and that's what I have to grab onto and to serve, to get outside of myself and um, build into others and keep the focus off myself and focus on God, focus mm -hmm. on others and just don't ever give up knowing that Jesus loves me. That's awesome. Woohoo! Thank you for sharing that. That was fantastic.